Last night we worked our way through the first six verses of Psalm 2 together, and this morning we hope to deal with the balance of it as part of starting off our, our new year together, this first worship service of the new year. For background to that, we're going to read from the second book of Samuel, chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, the verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Will you build me? a house to dwell in. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then we turn to the book of Psalms, and we will read Psalm 2 together. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So our text this morning will be the verses 7 through 12, and we'll be going through that line by line together. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the first day of 2023. A brand new year lies before us. What are you looking forward to the most? What is the most promising of all? Maybe this is the year you're hoping to graduate. Maybe this is the year you're hoping to buy your own car or your own house. Maybe this is the year you're going off to study, or the year you hope to leave on a long trip. It's a year full of promise. But is that really the only thing that you're looking forward to? Surely if we're going to look forward to anything, it should be the promise in the second half of the psalm. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is God's promise to his son that he will reign over the whole earth. Are you not looking forward to that? Are you not looking forward to seeing the undisputed reign of Christ? You see, many of God's promises have been fulfilled already, but not this one. This one is not completely fulfilled yet. And that means that we are still seeing it being fulfilled. We will see more of it fulfilled in this year, the year of our Lord, 2023. And that makes this an exciting year. That's the gospel that comes to us on this first Sunday of the new year. The Son is the King of 2023. And we'll pay attention to two points. What will He do and what should you do? So we spent some time last night looking at the first half of Psalm 2. We're hoping to look at the second half this morning. And one of the things that we worked out last night was that this song, this psalm was not originally about Christ. It was first written for David and his descendants. In particular, the psalm initially referred to King Solomon, 
We know from Acts 4 verse 25 that the psalm was written by David. We know from a reading in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 that God had made a promise regarding Solomon. God had said, I will be his father and he will be to me a son. And that promise comes back in other places. For example, in Psalm 89, it's um, sung about quite at length. So when you read Psalm 2, verse 7, you need to read it from that perspective. You need to read it as something that was initially written for Solomon and his descendants. That the Lord is speaking to Solomon and to his descendants here. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so from that perspective, that that phrase, today I have begotten you, should not be misunderstood in some sort of a literal way or a physical way. This is simply um, a way in which God declares that he is the father of the king. In fact, it's quite possible that these words were repeated every time that one of these Israelite kings was anointed. That would be a a sensible time to... to, um, read out that promise to remind the king and the people of what the Lord had promised. And what a promise it was. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Beautiful, beautiful words. But how did that work out over time? All these people laid claim to God's covenant promises, but they did not honor God's covenant relationship with them. They were unfaithful to the Lord who had made them king. And that began already with Solomon. He fell into idolatry in his old age, which goes to show that age does not necessarily bring wisdom. So the Lord divided his kingdom after his death. He left only a remnant. So this is one generation after this promise has been made. You will have dominion. I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. One family, one generation later, and he's got one tribe left. So that did not go well. And then most of the successes were unfaithful to the Lord as well. Finally, the whole nation was was removed from the presence of God after the exile. Remember that the land of Canaan was, was almost like paradise. It was described as a land of milk and honey, and so these people were taken out of this, this paradise, removed into exile. This national catastrophe happened in 586 BC, barely four centuries after God made this promise to David. But what's really interesting is that the people continued to sing this psalm. They did not um, reevaluate. You, you, you imagine, they were utterly crushed after the exile. You can imagine them thinking that maybe they misunderstood something. Maybe we need to rethink what, what we thought this meant. But they didn't. They believed that King David was a prophet. They believed that this promise came from God. They believed that it would be honored one day. An heir would come who would live up to everything that this psalm promised. And that heir is Jesus. Jesus was that heir. God identified him at his baptism. He said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so that's one of, one of those echoes of Psalm 2. Jesus inherited the throne through a process of suffering. He didn't rule the nations with a rod of iron, but he was whipped. His body was broken. He was not enthroned on Mount Zion, but led out to Golgotha and crucified there. He did not commit sin himself, but he atoned through it. 
He atoned for it through his suffering. So Jesus was the son that God never had in any of these descendants of David. Jesus was the perfectly obedient son, more obedient than Adam who led us all into sin, more obedient than David who failed in his family life, more obedient than Solomon who led his people into idolatry in his old age. Jesus is a son who never sinned, the king who never failed. Through him, God made a new beginning. Colossians 1 verse 18 through 20 says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the only person who can fully fulfill these promises is God himself. He was the one who gave them. He was the one who fulfilled them. And so only in God are these promises made complete. And then the psalm becomes very easy to understand. If you look at Psalm 2, you compare it to Christ's life. It's clear that verse 7 is connected to his resurrection. The resurrection was proof that God accepted him as king. Jesus, as, as man, God accepted him as king. This is all over the New Testament. This is, I said this last night too, this is a very important psalm in terms of understanding what the New Testament is about, what the gospel is about. In Acts 13, verse 33, Paul and Barnabas are preaching in the synagogue. They say, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus And then listen what he says, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So they quote from this psalm, they connect it to his resurrection. They're saying, see, this is fulfilled in Jesus. This idea that Jesus was declared to be king through his resurrection comes back in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 1 verse 3 and 4 says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that same idea returns in other places in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, verse 20 and 21 says, He raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, that at the name of Jesus, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, so this throne is, is the throne of the universe. No longer just the throne of Israel, but the throne of the universe. No one else can occupy this throne, not even an angel. Hebrews 1 verse 5 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. See this Psalm 2 again. So Jesus alone is the king of 2023, simply because no one else is qualified to be on the throne. We can be completely confident in this because God said so. He gave his word. It goes back to Psalm 2. You are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Even Solomon himself, the most successful of all the Israelite kings, never lived up to that promise. But Jesus will. He has not yet, but he will. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25, He must reign 
until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So on the one hand, he is reigning. He legitimately sits on his throne. On the other hand, he has not yet put all his enemies under his feet. And that's what makes the coming year so exciting. Because this is, this is ongoing right now. You are in the middle, so to speak, of prophecy. You're going to see it fulfilled in 2023. We can expect to see the reign of Christ expand. But what is the point of promising this kingdom to Jesus? So that he will regain it and hand it back to his father. That's what 2023 is about. This, this psalm was not an afterthought for us to shoehorn into the rest of our busy lives. This is the very purpose of history. Nothing else matters. All other things fade into insignificance compared to this. As Martin Luther wrote, quote, Nothing pleases God. Nothing is beloved by God except this king. Those then who do not receive this king who do not throw themselves at his feet, who do not use him as a mediator, God hates, rejects, and condemns eternally. For he cares nothing for their works, nothing for their virtues, nothing for their extraordinary concerns, nothing for their righteousness and sanctity, which they believe will recommend them to God. For this one alone is the Son who pleases the Father, and who alone has and possesses all things by the Father's will." End quote. So how does this world become his own? Not by raw conquest, but by the gospel. The Bible teaches us that man is separated from God. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means by nature we're bound by sin. Scripture says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Indeed, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So for Christ to bring us, bring us back into his kingdom, he first had to pay the penalty for our sins, which is death. He did that on the cross. Then he had to secure new life for us. He did that through his resurrection. Then he had to bring us to repentance, and he does that every day through his spirit. So what does it mean for him to inherit the nations? It means that he delivers them from bondage and brings them into his kingdom through faith. And there's only one way for that to work, and that is through the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. So once you really understand that, you start to think about the word of God differently. You start to see that the word of God has a power of its own. If the gospel is preached properly, it confronts us with our own sin and inability, and it calls us to submit ourselves to Christ. That's what good preaching is supposed to do. It's not meant to be an inspirational pep talk. It is a weapon of war. This here is God's weapon of war. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God, that's what this is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what Jesus is using to conquer the world. This is it. The word that passes judgment. It calls to repentance. 
In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power, that's what this comes with, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This word is unstoppable. Jeremiah 23 verse 29 compares it to fire and to a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. And one day this word will condemn all those who have rebelled against God. That was already prophesied as well in Isaiah 11 verse 4. The scriptures are full of this. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Those words are applied to Jesus in Revelation 19, verse 15, when it describes him going out to war. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. comes from his mouth. That means that it, this is a symbol of, of the, this represents the word. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread them. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God's word is the strongest force known to man. It is wielded by Christ himself. He is the king of Psalm 2. He intends to continue to rule and to conquer this year. Those who oppose him will ultimately be shattered. The hardest hearts can be shattered by his word. Did you know that? Every time that someone comes to faith, every time that they convert, you are seeing a miracle. You are seeing the word of God overcome a human heart which on its own is hardened and dead in sin. But those who continue to resist will ultimately be judged. They will be like pottery dashed with an iron bar. That's how much chance they stand against him. Now it could be that you're sitting here this morning and you think this sounds very aggressive. But is it not reason to celebrate? I mean, look at the world that we live in. It's a world so full of unstoppable forces, economic, political, social, financial. A world full of warlike people and unstoppable forces. And in that world, we belong to a king who has conquered death. If he's conquered death, defeated Satan, broken the power of sin, what else is left? Is there anything else that he couldn't do after doing that? What else could stand up against him? So what should you do? This being our, our second point. And the psalm says, what you do is you submit to him. You serve the Lord with fear. You rejoice with trembling. You kiss the son. This business of kissing the son, this is a sign of submission. It's the language of submission and faith. John 3 verse 36 says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, in this uh, parallel structure, in this thought, whoever believes in the Son is parallel to whoever does not obey. And so what that tells us is that faith is not just an invitation. It is, it is a call. It's a call which is extended in warmth, the call to repent, but it is not an invitation, which is up to you to 
to take it or not take it as you see fit. This is a command, the command to repent and believe. We're commanded to kiss the Son. That's a sign of submission and acceptance. But buried deep inside the structure of Psalm 2, in that very line, is the gospel. How? Remember how, how we saw that the nations were raging against God's anointed. In the days of the Israelite kings, those nations, those foreign nations around them spoke Aramaic. The foreign nations spoke Aramaic. And now in Psalm 2, we have an Aramaic word at this very location. In Hebrew, it says, the whole psalm is in Hebrew except for this one word. It, said, it says in Hebrew, kiss the, and then you would, you would expect it to say ben, which would be the Hebrew word for son, but it doesn't. It says bar, kiss the bar. It's an Aramaic word. So think about that. He's, in this word, it, he's, so to speak, turning to all these people that have rebelled against him. And he's saying to them in their language, kiss the sun. It's, it's, he's, he's bridging the gap. That's grace. He's coming to them in their own language and he's saying to them, kiss the sun. And he's doing this to people who are rebelling against him. Is this not the very essence of salvation? That God reveals his son to those who rebel against, them, against him. That he, he comes to them where they are in the midst of their rebellion and he reveals to them the son. I mean, you can't, you can't make it any more plain than that. Kiss the son. That's mercy. That's something very beautiful. That's the gospel going to them in their own language, just like it did for us. And he says to all these people, as he says to us, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now this, this is what people on the outside don't understand because they look at that first half, serve the Lord with fear, and they think this is about slavery. This is about weakness. This is about giving up your autonomy. That's what the Jews already thought in the days of Jesus. And by the way, these were the most religious people you could imagine. In John 10, they say to Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains in it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So everybody, by nature, is enslaved until the gospel sets them free. And when the gospel sets you free, then you know who God is. You, you start to see it. You approach him in, in fear and in trembling because of who he is. And you rejoice because he is for us. So this fear can never be a servile fear if it goes with rejoicing. This is fear in the sense of awe and reverence. Fear and trembling because of who he is, rejoicing because he is for us. Do you, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord in 2023? Do you rejoice that this God is for us? Have you submitted to him or not? See, the problem with our culture is that we have no sense of awe anymore. If there's one thing that's wrong with Western culture, it is that we have lost our sense of awe, our sense of the transcendent. We are so jaded. 
We don't even understand what these psalms, what the psalm means anymore. You could, you could, you could read the psalm in the middle of a shopping center and nobody would understand a word of it. There's no more awe. There's no more conceptual framework for any of this. But what we miss is that the psalm is calling us to take refuge in the sun. Not bondage, but, but refuge. Have awe and take refuge in him. He warns us because those who disobey will be destroyed. But the call in the psalm is a gospel call to take refuge. To serve the Lord with fear. To rejoice with trembling. How could it be any other way? How could he tolerate any other rival kingdom? Whose kingdom is he going to tolerate? Putin's kingdom? Xi Jinping's kingdom? Your kingdom? Is he to reduce his eternal glory and sacrifice his eternal kingdom to accommodate the shallow imperial ambitions of power-hungry autocrats? He has something much better for us. He calls us to rejoice with fear and trembling. He calls us to faith, not fear. Romans 8 verse 15 to 17 says that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, servile fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is what happens when you have faith. You become an heir. If you're an heir, you share in the inheritance, in the rule. That's what baptism promises to us as well. You witnessed a baptism this morning. It's a promise of adoption, of sonship. It's the call to faith, just like we see in this psalm. What an incredible king we have, that he would actually make us co-heirs with the kingdom. With all of our weaknesses that he would call us together into a church. The fact that the gospel is so often tainted by our imperfections and our shortcomings, our sins and our weaknesses should never distract us from who Jesus was and what he has done. Sometimes we can lose sight of that. We complain about all sorts of stuff. We complain about our spouse, about the church, about the leadership, about the members, about everything. The psalm is telling you, you have to see the big picture. Look past all of that. Look at the gospel. God is restoring you to your rightful place as ruler over creation. In Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27, he exhorts us all, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's where he's going. So hold fast to the gospel and keep conquering. Already now the gospel is at work in your life. Already now it is overcoming sin in your life. Already now you're growing in faith. Already now you're learning to kiss the Son. You're learning what it means to submit to him. Already now he's restoring us to what we were meant to be. And one day... We will rule with him. That's the ultimate promise of this psalm. 
And you might not see it yet. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's Hebrews 2 verse 8. We have to go by faith. And in terms of of seeing this in the world around us, we might never see it in our lifetime. In 2023, we should probably also expect more marginalization and slander of the gospel. Scripture tells us to expect this. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 through 15, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say might be persecuted. He says will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse. Not from bad to better, but from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And this is a a long-term thing, so maybe personally you might not experience much persecution in your lifetime, but your children might. It's possible. And then that leads you to another question. How are you preparing your children for that possibility? Are you teaching them to read this psalm and to understand what it means in the light of all of Scripture? How are you equipping them to live in a world that, that hates Christ and his kingdom and that will not stop hating Christ and his kingdom? We don't know how this year will go. So what should we do in 2023? Just be faithful. Paul goes on to write, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's all of us from childhood acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So be faithful to your calling in God's kingdom. Serve Him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Continue to take refuge in the Son. Listen to Him. Take His words seriously. Spend time in worship. Spend time in, in the Word. Listen to Him. Then you will be blessed, not oppressed. And then you can look forward to His coming. It is true we live in a godless post-Christian age. We should not expect that to change this year. But this age does not have the last word. Only Christ does. There is no refuge from him, so find your refuge in him. Then you will have a good year, no matter what happens. Amen.